Well, you can get your Bibles out open to Hebrews chapter 3, page 1375 in that pew Bible in front of you. Hebrews chapter 3 towards the back of your New Testament. Move through Paul's letters. You get to Hebrews. Um, So we're going to be primarily in Hebrews 3. There'll be a bunch of texts that'll come up on the screen. I put those on your listening guide for you. Did you do something good yesterday? Just promise me. Tell me you didn't stay inside. My goodness. What a day. We... Yesterday, I got to do one of my favorite things in the whole wide world. I love weddings. Man, I love weddings. I love Christian weddings. We were outside and just uh, celebrating Michael and Sydney as they made a covenant before God. And I thought as I looked out there in the crowd, I, you know, when two people from the same church get married, and you just look out there, and you see all of you. I mean, I knew everybody there just about. It was like we could have had church right there. I mean, it was, man, it was a blessing. It was awesome. That just makes me appreciate you and love you. You're such a wonderful people, just the way you encourage each other and love each other and celebrate the milestones in one another's lives. It's it's just a blessing to be a part, for sure. And uh, Okay, I'm going to pray. I see Merle and Jimmy are back there, and I'm very grateful for that. Uh, they're two people that were very foundational and formational in my life. And I know, Merle, you've been struggling with your blood count and stuff and trying to go to the doctor, so we're going to pray for you. Why don't those of you just turn around and put your hand on them. Lean up and touch them right there. And let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning that you've let us be together. And Lord, we know you're here in our midst and we know, Lord, that you love us and we know you're sovereign. We know you're good. And if we know that, then we know as your people that today all things are possible in you and that there's no burden, struggle, trial, difficulty, challenge, hurdle, that cannot be overwhelmed by your goodness and your grace because of what the Lord Jesus has done. And Lord, I I pray for Merle and Jimmy. I know they've had a difficult time. And Lord, I lift them to you and I thank you for them, Lord. And I pray that you'll help Merle with her, her blood, Lord, that you'll fix whatever's wrong. And Lord, I know that it's a, a great burden upon them, but thank you for the way you manifest yourself with them, that they know that you're always there present, that you care for them, Lord, and their testimony is a testimony of the goodness of who you are, and we thank you for that. So thanks for letting them be with us this morning, and God, it's a pleasure to be here, to gather around your word, to celebrate what you have to say to us, and we give you all the glory and the praise in advance for what you're going to do. We ask now that you give us ears to hear, that our hearts would be in the right posture willing to receive what you have to say. We thank you that you're a God who speaks. May we be a people who listen 
In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're in this series, Resilient, and uh, we are talking about uh, what makes resilient disciples. And uh, through just one of the most fascinating things that I've ever uh, come across, uh, as thousands of Christians studied all across the world over a decade, and just looking at what is it that uh, creates in people a discipleship model where they flourish uh, as they transition out of growing up into the church into adulthood. Now, we know what the statistics are, but we just need to remind ourselves of the situation every time we gather around. We know that there's four groups, and the first groups the first group is the prodigals, and the prodigals represent 22% of Christians. The second group is the nomads. The nomads represent 30%. These are people who would still identify as a Christian but don't attend church. The biggest group are the habitual church growers, and that's 38%. And they're people who describe themselves as Christians who attend church, but who do not meet the foundational core beliefs or behaviors associated with being an intentional, engaged disciple. They're, they don't operate according to biblical principles. And then this small group that we're studying, these resilient disciples, 10%. And these are the people who, they attend church, but they do so much more than that. They firmly believe in the authority of the Scripture. Their lives bear that out in the things that they do. They're committed to Jesus personally. They, you know, you can't, you can't say that Jesus is your Lord if you don't do what He says. You just can't do that. He's not your Lord. And it's, uh, so don't be alarmed that only 10% are resilient disciples. Invest your time in what makes these 10% resilient. Now, another reminder, the goal of discipleship is to develop Jesus followers who are resiliently faithful in the face of cultural coercion and who live a vibrant life in the Spirit. And so we've talked about how we live in digital Babylon, and we talked about how we got to digital Babylon, and we looked last week as the prophet Jeremiah taught us how God moves his people into exile. And God has a purpose for us in exile. And so we find ourselves in a culture that's, that's moving uh, continually away from biblical principles. But we ought not, there's no reason to panic. There's no reason to fret. God's still on the throne. He's still in control. What we need to do is make sure that we're positioned ourselves to to be useful for the kingdom and the opportunities that God's given us. So there's three, there's really five practices, so we'll get to all five. We're on the third today, but there's five things that make resilient disciples distinct. Only five. And these five, across the board, all over the world, and on every different continent, all translated. And that's what makes these five things so incredible. The first one was... 
to form a resilient identity. That was week one. Resilient identity. Oh, that's on the back of your listening guide, by the way, if you're lost. There you go. Resilient identity. Last week, practice two, develop cultural discernment. So this is about uh, being part of a community that's under the authority of Scripture, but really it's about understanding the culture that you live in and having biblical wisdom. Biblical wisdom. Cultural discernment. Now today we get to practice three, and this one is to forge meaningful intergenerational relationships. Meaningful intergenerational relationships. This is the third commonality amongst the small percentage of people who were resilient disciples over a long span of time. So this means being devoted to accountability with fellow believers we want to be around and become. That's what intergenerational relationships means. Now, if you think about it, especially here in the Bible Belt, there are so many people around us all the time who grew up in or with religion, and we start talking to them about a relationship with Jesus, and they think that what we're talking about is what they grew up with. But if they're confronted with a community of people that's walking out the gospel together, they immediately know that it is very different from anything they've ever seen or experienced before. And I have seen that, and many of you have seen that over and over. Now, the key to understanding resilience is you have to get this definition down. So I, I shouldn't even have to say this. You, you should all just fill in the next blanks. Just fill in those first blanks. Because you've got to know the two components of resilience. Very important. Realism plus hope. You have to have a realistic understanding of where you are and who you are and what's going on around you. And then you have to have a hope that endures, that doesn't disappoint. And those two things combined equal resilience. Now today we're going to talk about being resilient in the war. But rather than me stand up here and describe to you what the war is, I'm going to let you hear firsthand a story, testimony of a young couple in our church who has successfully navigated the war this past year. So I'm going to ask Jill if you'll come up here. Jill, please. And then when she's done, her husband Blake's going to share a few words. So Jill's going to share her story with us this morning. So you listen intently as she leads us. Good morning. So I just want to start off by sharing a little bit of background about myself. My name is Jill Moss. I've been married to Blake Moss for six years. We have a beautiful almost four-year-old son. His name is Brooks. And I have been a part of Michael Memorial my entire life. So some of you may know me. Some of you have may just seen me around. 
but not many of you know our story. So I'm really excited that and blessed that we get to share a part of it with you all today. So in November of 2013, Brother Tony married us right here in our church. It was a very exciting and amazing time beginning our new lives together. So in our minds, we loved each other. We went to a great church. We were excited about getting our new life started with God at the center of our marriage. The first couple of years flew by. I had just finished college and started my career as a teacher, and Blake was busy getting his own business started. But every Sunday morning, we were here. We would go to service, and we were in a Sunday school class. We had friends at church, but not really anybody that could hold us accountable. So next came our beautiful son, Brooks. He was born on March 1st, 2016. And as the next few months passed, we stayed home Sunday after Sunday. We tried bringing Brooks to church a handful of times, but there was always a reason that kept us from staying in service, or one of us to stay in service. He was crying or hungry, or he just wouldn't sit still, and we didn't want to be the reason that somebody was distracted. And while he was still young, I didn't want to put him in the nursery because he wasn't used to being around other kids. So these were the worst excuses ever, I know. But month after month came and went, and eventually we just stopped coming altogether. In my heart, I knew it wasn't right, but it happened anyways. Looking back now, I can see how the enemy was so clever at getting into our minds and using whatever he could to distract us from what was most important. In my mind, I knew that we would get back in church one day, but it was always put off till the next week. But the next week never came. After about a year of not being in church, our world started slowly falling apart. I didn't know it at the time, but my husband was struggling with addiction. I knew something wasn't right. I just didn't know what it was. Eventually, I found out what was going on, and I was devastated. I thought it was the end of the world. All I could think was, how am I going to get through this? What did I do to deserve this? It was all I, I, I. I kept questioning God on why this was happening to me. So I took matters into my own hands, and I tried everything in my power to put my family back together. It was a horrible failure. The harder I tried, the worse things got, and the more hopeless I became. We eventually hit rock bottom, and it was out of our hands. I knew I couldn't fix it on my own. I needed God. But we had walked away from him. We were disconnected from church, and we were alone. I finally broke down and I said, okay, God, I'm listening. What do you want me to do? I knew the first step was to reach out to Brother Tony and set up a meeting. Walking into his office that day, I was so ashamed because I knew he was going to be so disappointed in me for waiting till things had gotten to this point to reach out to him. Once we were there, I knew we had made the right decision. We knew that he loved us and he told us that this journey was not going to be easy. But if we were willing to surrender, that he would walk with us. He told us that Blake was going to have to go to the home of grace, and that was our only option. That meant that he would be gone for three months. How was I going to make it without him? How could I afford to live? He wouldn't even be here for Thanksgiving or Christmas. So many things went through my head, but I knew that it was the only way. Those next few days were such a struggle. The enemy was doing everything he could to keep Blake away from there, but by the grace of God, he went. I dropped him off on October 11, 2018, And it was one of the hardest things that I had ever had to do. From that moment on, things began to change. I was in church every Sunday morning. I would sit in service with a friend or sometimes just by myself. I put Brooks in the nursery, and he loved it right from the beginning, and that was such a blessing. I started going to Brother Tony's class, 
because I knew I wanted to be involved. During this time, God was doing amazing things in my heart and molding me into the person that he wanted me to be. He showed me how much love, how much he loved me and how much I needed to depend on him. There was one day my checking account was zero, and I knew that if I drove to church, I wouldn't have enough gas to get to work, but I came to church anyway. And that day, Brother Tony walked up to me, and he handed me an envelope full of money for gas and for groceries. God is so good. Meanwhile, Blake was at the home of grace immediately that God was working in his heart. I would tell him about how God was taking care of us and how good it felt to get back on track. So three months went by, and it was finally time for Blake to come home. He graduated on January 11, 2019, and it was time for us to get our lives back. But we knew that things could never go back to the way they were before. We were in church every time the doors were open, Sunday nights, Wednesday nights, and not because we had to be, but because we wanted to be. We were so excited about what God wanted and what he wanted for us to be a part of, and we wanted to be a part of everything that he was doing. We found a wonderful Sunday school class that took us in and loved us right from the start. We both joined D groups, and we finally had people in our lives who were going to keep us accountable. We even started serving in church together. Um, Sorry. It felt wonderful. And Tony had told us that we had to be intentional about deep community and about how we couldn't just wait for it to come to us. We had to seek it out, and we had to fight for it. Um, We didn't understand at first what he meant, but we sure do now. Real community is something you have to work at. The enemy is always working to discourage us or isolate us from people that we need in our lives. It's not easy to open up your life and be transparent about your failures and your fears. Blake and I are a testimony of what happens when a broken, hopeless situation meets a miracle-working God. We are living proof of Jesus' power to heal and do the impossible. Words cannot express how much this church has meant to us throughout our entire journey. From the loving faces that welcomed us right back in like we had never left, to every sermon that God used to speak to us through, and the community that wrapped us up and gave us exactly what we needed. When Tony was preaching on Jonah, he said that you cannot outrun God. Jeremiah 7.13 says that God sends storms when words don't work anymore, and that's exactly what he did in our lives. After the storm had done its job, we were finally able to begin the journey the way it was always supposed to be. So throughout this whole experience, I feel like God has shown us two very important things. Number one, we cannot do life without God at the center, and we were crazy to ever think that that was an option. And number two, community is so, so, so important. Before everything happened, we were just habitual churchgoers, and we thought that coming to church on Sunday mornings was enough, but boy, were we wrong. We didn't have the tools we needed or the community we needed. So now, that, now we know that we have to be intentional because there's always spiritual warfare going on day in and day out. And, if we, and without community and being plugged in, it's not possible to survive it. We wouldn't be where we are today if it wasn't for God never giving up on us and making a way for us to join community and be plugged in with people who really know us and still really love us. Great job, babe. I'm so proud of you. Thankful to call you my wife. I just want to start by giving God all the glory and praise uh, because it's all because of him where we're at today and what he's brought us from. And when Pastor Tony asked Jill to share 
our story in service today. I knew I couldn't pass up the opportunity to get up here and say a few words as well. Me getting up here and speaking in front of a crowd is something that before God changing my life, I would never have done. It's not easy now, and it's definitely way out of my comfort zone. But I know living in my comfort zone almost killed me and held me back from being who God has called me to be. I'm so grateful that I have been given another opportunity to live a life obedient to God. And I have to choose every day to live outside of that comfort zone and be obedient to what God asks of me to do. And I know that I'm different today because I'm willing to say yes to whatever God calls me to do, no matter how scary, crazy, or uncomfortable it is, I'm willing to do it. When I left the home of grace just over a year ago, I had no idea what I was going to do. And having a drawn-out plan wasn't important to me. But what was important was that I knew I was going to get plugged into the church. I was going to be transparent about my struggles, and I would say yes to anything God called me to do. I believe that if I could just do that, that everything else would work itself out, and it has. Now, it definitely hasn't been smooth sailing, and we continue to go through storms, but they don't destroy us because we are in community here at church and involved and supported by other like-minded believers that walk with us and help guide us through our challenges we are enduring, and we are able to do the same for others. It is a beautiful thing, and without it, we would be lost and not up here today sharing our story with you. Without a doubt, community is what God has called us to be a part of. I just want to encourage anyone that's struggling and knows deep down that God wants you to join community to just do it. It's not going to just happen, and it's not going to be easy. But you have to step out of your comfort zone and choose to say yes what God is calling you to do. Not only do you need it, but we need you too. God is definitely working miracles in community, and my family is a life transformed through it. This is just the beginning, and we can't wait to see what God has planned for our family and in this church. Thank you. Amen. Altar call. So that's just one story uh, of many among us, and I, I want you to know that the conversation we're about to have for the next few moments, is a, it's a real conversation. It's real. And if, if you don't listen, you're going to suffer. Because it's not a joke. There's a lot of people in this room that think you have something that you do not have. You think you have something that you do not have. I'm not worried about the people in the room that know they don't have it because God will convict your heart and you'll move. I'm worried about the deceived people in the room. Because your heart is hardened. You think you have something, but you don't. And the way you know that you don't 
is by this next statement. Abiding in community is war. It is war. And you can only know this if you're in biblical community. Because if it's not war, then you're not in community. What you have is a counterfeit. It's it's disingenuous. It's not real. It's not what God intends. It's war. Jill and Blake would tell you it's war. The couples that I've walked through the exact same situation. Exact same. They're not here. They lost the fight. They perished on the battlefield because they didn't listen. They didn't listen. But don't listen to me. Let's listen to God. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 3 and let's see what God has to say about this. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. The Word of God says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. That is a remarkably shocking statement. Beware, brothers and sisters. Beware, church. Beware, believers. Lest there be in any of you, not, we're not talking about people outside. We're talking to me and you. A heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So let's talk about the problem. The problem is this, disconnected we drift. Doesn't matter how strong you think you are, doesn't matter really anything about what you think. The bottom line, the undeniable, 100% true, 100% of the time, in 100% of people, reality is disconnected people drift, period. No matter what, you drift. The Bible says, look at the way verse 12 begins. Beware. Beware. I mean, do I have to say anything else? God is telling the church to beware of something. Normally, when the Bible uses the term beware, the very next 
thing that follows is a statement about Satan or our enemy. But here, the command is to beware of what? To beware that we might be careless about the condition of our heart because our heart is dangerous. It's dangerous. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. The issues of life. All of life. And a disconnected heart will drift every single time. Drift from what? What will we drift from? See, this is what we think. This is... If, you're, if you are culturally discerning, then you already know this. Because if you can discern the culture, uh, the Christian culture, and you can discern digital Babylon around us, then you already know. You already know what the Christian culture believes. The Christian culture believes that you can... Be a Christian, you can be uh, connected to a church, a member of a church. You go to that church, maybe you go to Sunday school. But you don't attend church like you attend work or you'd be unemployed. The culture in the church believes that you can attend multiple churches at the same time even. Sometimes I go to this church. Sometimes I go to that church. Try to square that up with Scripture and see how, how it gets you. The culture believes that, you know, you can move from one place to another. So if you... Move, you just find another church and plug yourself right in. No problem. Few people come into a new place with the reality that the most important thing that they've got to do is they've got to find where God is going to plant them and then they've got to work really hard. To get themselves plugged in. Colossians chapter 1 verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith. If indeed you continue in the faith. Grounded and steadfast. And are not, the Bible says, moved away from the hope of the gospel. See, you can't be resilient without hope. The Bible, the Bible has a different, whole different idea about this issue of community. Completely different than what the culture thinks. Satan's done a really good job of convincing people that they're fine, that they're okay. Look at what we drift into. 
unbelief and hardness of heart. What? The shocking thing is that there's probably a lot of things that I could say that would scare you more than unbelief and hardness of heart. Because that ought not be true. Unbelief and hardness of heart ought to be more scary to you than cancer. Losing a loved one. It ought to be more scary to you than anything you could imagine. Because there's nothing worse than this. And why do we drift? Why? Let the Bible answer it. Look at verse 13. But exhort one another daily while it is still called today. As if the Bible understands our longing to put this off. See, some of you, you want to run out of here so fast right now you can't stand it. But you're stuck now. Not tomorrow, today. God's not talking to you about tomorrow. He's talking to you about today, right now. What are you going to do about it? Today. Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So why do we drift? Here's why we drift. I'm going to explain this to you, all right? Then I'll give you an illustration so you can understand. Because sin still has an active influence in our lives. Do you understand that? If you're in here... You're a sinner. And you're listening to a sinner. And it would be helpful if we all just understood that we're sinners. Nobody's got it together. We're all sinners. All of us. And so we may be in Christ... But there's still indwelling sin in our hearts. You see, all of our sin can be forgiven. And the Spirit of God can indwell us. And we can be completely His. See, the writer of Hebrews isn't talking to the world. The writer of Hebrews is talking to the church. Now about this sin, let's clarify, okay? So on the cross, Jesus dealt with the penalty of our sin. That penalty has been dealt with. It's been paid. Our debt's been paid. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Who himself bore our sin in his own body on a tree that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Amen. It's been paid. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So the penalty's been paid, the propitiation, the debt of our sin has been handled. Jesus did that on the cross. Amen? The power of sin has been broken. The penalty's been paid, the power's been broken. Romans chapter 6, verse 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him 
that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. When we become a believer, when God saves us, the penalty of our sins taken care of, and the power of our sin has been broken because we now have the Spirit of God within us, and so we can say no to any temptation that comes before us. The old man who was at the mercy of his flesh is no longer the one who lives. Paul goes on in verse 14 of Romans 6, For sin shall have no dominion over you, for you're not under law but under grace. You see? So we have the power to do that. So you would think, well, amen, we got this thing licked. Bump. No. Because we're not yet freed from the presence of sin. It's been dealt with, it's been done, it's finished, but we don't fully experience it until we get to heaven. So let me, let me use a historical illustration to explain this to you, okay? You know World War II, D-Day, June 6, 1944? The Allied forces stormed the beaches at Normandy. It was a bloody, brutal, just unbelievable battle. Many, many, many lives were lost. But here's what happened. Once that mission was complete, it was a turning point in the war. From that point forward, for all intensive purposes, the war was over. Germany was defeated. D-Day was doomsday for Hitler. But complete victory didn't come. For 11 months, battles raged on. Many men lost their lives. Much blood was shed. Though the enemy was weakened mortally and could not recover. It took 11 months before the Germans finally surrendered in Berlin. VE Day. Victory in Europe Day. On the cross... Jesus stormed the beaches of hell. And on the third day, he rose from the dead. And that was doomsday for the enemy. But there are still battles being fought. 
and there's still blood being shed. You see, though we have a defeated foe, he still wanders the battlefields of our heart. You see, he's mortally wounded. The day Jesus erupted from that grave, the war was won. But total surrender has not yet happened. There's still battles that need to be waged. There's still blood that will be shed. But let me tell you something. When Jesus returns, it's going to be the real VE day. Victory over everything day, that day. What you have to understand is that sin is not just something we do. It's a power that works in us. Now, we have the ability, the capacity to walk in the Spirit and not commit the things of the flesh. But we also have the capacity and the ability to walk in the flesh and not in the Spirit. And get ourselves into all sorts of things we ought not be into. So the problem is disconnected. Is bad. What's the solution? The solution. Connected, we win. Connected, we win. Look at verse 12. Back to our text. Hebrews 3, verse 12. Beware, brethren. You should underline that word, brethren. Lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Brethren. This refers to men and it refers to women. But not just any men and women. It refers to men and women who are brothers and sisters, who are family members. These are brothers and sisters, a family. Beware family, God says. Beware family. See, God has pulled us together through his adoption, making us brothers and sisters, placing us in his household. That's why we always talk about this church as a family because that's how God sees the church, a family. It's a, it's, a, it's a household. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6, just back up to verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. You see that? It's a family. We're his house. We're the household. We're never intended to be alone in the battle against Remaining sin. Never. Ever. It is an absolute catastrophe. So no matter how uncomfortable it makes you feel, because it does, 
or it will. No matter how much you dread it, because you will. Resist it. The minute you take your eyes off the fact that it's a war, my hope and prayer for you after today is that you'll sense immediately the drift. Immediately. Immediately. There is no victory alone. There's no victory alone. See, here's what's going to happen. Some of you are going to hear what God's saying to you this morning. And you're going to make some appropriate changes in your life. And you're going to realize that you have some community around you, but it's not what I'm talking about. It's not biblical, transparent community. It's just people around you that you know and they know you. And but if we're honest, there's really no different than the people that you work with or your friends from, that you went to high school with or the people that live across the street from you that you fellowship with or whatever. That's not what I'm talking about. But when it comes to being transparent with people, here's what's going to happen. You're going you're gonna to feel this overwhelming desire to just... Keep your mouth shut. Don't say it. They won't understand. What could they do about it anyway? It's just going to get weird. Drift. Right there. Drift. Because you don't believe. You don't believe that it's true. You don't believe that there's no victory alone. You don't believe that. Because if we believe that, there wouldn't be a single burden in this room that you weren't sharing with someone. You see, because they're genuine burdens and genuine struggles and genuine problems, and you genuinely want to Grow through them. You want to see God moving them. You want to see things change. You want to, but you don't tell anybody because you don't believe it. I don't want you to believe me. First Corinthians chapter fifteen, verse fifty-seven. But thanks be to God who gives who the victory. You the victory? Is that what that verse says? It's not your victory. It's our victory. You see that? The victory comes in community. It's, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Well, that's good news. And this is the victory. Here we go. Our faith. It's not your faith. It's our faith. You see that? 
It's together. There's no victory alone. You see, when the writer of Hebrews in verse 13 says, but exhort one another daily, exhort, we think, well, the easiest way to, to understand the word exhort is we say, well, it's the biblical word for encourage. Well, not exactly. Parakaleo, that's the Greek word used there for exhort. The prefix para means to come alongside of. Kaleo, that verb, kaleo, that's the verb. It means to call out to, to speak to. To come alongside and call out. That's what that means, to exhort. To come alongside and to call out. And you're thinking, well, how is that helpful? Here's how that's helpful. It is 100% impossible for you to exhort yourself. It's impossible. Because if you can come alongside yourself and call yourself out, you need way more help than I could ever give you. It's an impossibility to exhort yourself. And if you don't exhort yourself while it's called today, it's going to be a hundred times worse than cancer. It's going to be a hundred times worse than catastrophe. It's going to be, I mean, look at what's at stake here. You know, days like yesterday are so remarkable because of all the days that preceded yesterday that have been not so remarkable, have they? So when it's cold and it's raining and it's nasty outside and everything's a mess, you know, those are the days that I wish, it never works out this way, but I always say, man, I wish I could just stay home and sit in front of the fireplace and read a book. Be a good day to do that. Well, if you get a chance to read a book, I would recommend that you read Flags of Our Fathers by James Bradley. It's a book that tells the story of the six men who raised the American flag on the Japanese stronghold of Iwo Jima. You've seen the famous painting or the sculpture of those men pushing that flag up. And so this book is written about the after effects of that event on their lives. And there's some amazing quotes in that book. One of them is this. War is a team sport. The quote goes on to say that these soldiers were prepared to pay any price for one another as a team, as a band of brothers. 
It would be the ties at this level that would determine the outcome of the battle. Battling sin is hard. It's warfare. And warfare is bloody. And warfare is not fought alone. God's called us to be soldiers. But not just soldiers who go out and do things. No, no. He's called us to be soldiers, but he's put us in an army. And the army is called his church. But then he's, from there, put us in a battalion. And the battalion is this place called Michael Memorial Baptist Church. And we're soldiers in this grand army who serve in this battalion, this local battalion. And if we don't understand what I'm talking about today, we'll never be effective at the mission that God's given us. Any more than a bunch of renegade soldiers would be at going off and doing their own things. You see, the commander-in-chief of the army has directly commanded us to exhort one another daily while it's called today. And the shocking reality is, is that our ranks are riddled with AWOL soldiers. And what's really shocking is most of them don't even think they're AWOL. Because the research is very clear. The habitual churchgoer is resilient in all the wrong things. They've perfected dodging, ducking, and deflecting what God says. But the commander's spoken. That's the order. That's the warning. As a people, we need to demolish every stronghold of individualism. The digital Babylon is building up continuously in us every single day of our lives. I mean, everything, everything, everything is about how you can customize it and make it your own. And, and it's just feeding everybody into believing that we're somehow like God. And everything exists to serve us and to be the way we want it to be. And yet what God's calling us to do is to be willing to pay any price for one another as a band of brothers and sisters. Who understand the mission that we've been called to. And also understand that it's those ties at this level that will determine the outcome of the battle.
You see, to neglect what I'm saying this morning is literally like storming the beach at Normandy alone. It is sheer insanity. But what are we going to do? You know, it was years before I ever came across this research that we put the pathway up here on the wall. Maybe one of the things I was most excited about when all the research came out about resilient disciples is that it perfectly aligned with what God had already shown us to do. that you move at levels. You see, you got to get to know people on some level before you can discern whom in a room full of people you're really going to get to know, right? It only makes sense. How many times has Pastor Matt stood up and said, you need to be in a D group. I'm not going to put you in a D group. Fish out of the pond that you swim in. Right? So you, you move from this place into community and small group. And then the, the, the obvious thing to do is you're in a, a small group and you're getting to know a room full of people. And within that room full of people, you're able to identify some people within that context that maybe you think you could grow deeper with. They're not just people that you like. They're people that have certain qualities. But there's also people in that room that you are like, whew, you know, if I would have jumped into a year-long spending time with them once a week, I'm, you know, it would be bad, right? So I don't understand how you just walk up to somebody you don't know. I mean, that's a... I'm talking about real community, transparency. You know, in Exodus chapter 33 is one of my favorite places in Scripture to talk about this. And I'm just going to read this to you. This won't come up on the screen. You just listen. I want to make an important point for you to understand about moving forward in community. So in Exodus 33, we have this snapshot of Moses' life. The Bible says that Moses took his tent and he pitched it outside the camp, far outside the camp, and, he, and called it the tabernacle of meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. And so it was, whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle, that all the people would rise up. And each one would stand at the door of their tent and watch Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. 
And when it came to pass, when Moses entered the tabernacle, a pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle. And the Lord talked with Moses. All the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door. And all the people rose and worshipped, each man at his own tent door. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as if a man speaks to his friend. And then he would return to the camp. And then there's the most remarkable little statement that follows. But his servant, Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. And it just goes on. Now, let's think about this for a second. Moses is the greatest leader on the face of the earth. Nobody knows who Joshua is going to be. Nobody, the book of Joshua is not written. There's no, Joshua is just some young man. And just because you know the rest of the story... Keep your chronology straight. He's just a nobody. Everybody's at their tent. Except for one young man. There's one young man that's standing outside the tabernacle and he's listening. He's listening to Moses speak to God. And he's listening to God speak to Moses. And he's listening so intently that when Moses leaves the tent, he just stands there and processes what he just heard. So let me clarify something to you. You know how Joshua became the greatest leader on the face of the earth after Moses left? Let me tell you how he didn't do that. You know how he didn't do that? He didn't do that by hanging around in his tent having a small group with his buddies and his friends. That's not how he did that. He didn't do that by hanging around with his peer group. He didn't do that. You know how he did that? He did that by being with somebody who spoke to God and God spoke to them. He had a relationship, an intergenerational relationship with somebody who was way ahead of him in their spiritual journey, and they mentored under him. Because guess what would have happened if Joshua and two other young Joshuas would have spent years together? Nothing, because they're all at the same place. What do you think would have happened if the 12 disciples would have been spent three years together without Jesus? You see, what you got to understand is, is that you have to find people who are where you want to be. And you got to get them in your life. And if you're waiting for them to come ask you, it's never going to happen. You know why? Because we're all super busy. 
And we got people in our lives that we're discipling. You got to find them. Here was the shocking thing that occurred to me this week when I was thinking about this. Now, there's a handful of people in this room who you do just as good to be in their D group as mine. Just as good, no difference. This is what's shocking. Not one person, not one person came up and asked me if they could be in my D group. Now, I don't know how many people ask Pastor Matt. I don't know. But nobody came up and said, Brother Tony, would you disciple me? You want to know where you're going? You want to see your future? Just look around you. Because whoever you're hanging out with, spending all your time with, that's what you're becoming. Here's another thing that occurred to me. I was thinking about how probably for the first decade that I was a believer... I was thinking back on all the community and all the people that I sought out to mentor me and help me and teach me and mold me and shape me. And I realized all the community that Lisa and I enjoyed for that first decade, we were almost universally the youngest people in the, always, always. I spent all my time with older people. Now, don't get me wrong, because you'd make a mistake here today if you think that just because somebody's older, they're more spiritually mature, because that is not true. Sadly enough, it's not true. But I was always the youngest one. Now I'm the old guy. The best way for someone to get to know God is to get to know someone who knows God. You know what will change your life? Is if you get to spend a year standing outside the tent with somebody who speaks to God and God speaks to them. It'll change your life. I love to have fun. I love to hang out. I love to fellowship. But that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about will never happen in a Sunday school class. Because it can't. There's too many people in the room.
I'm talking about real, genuine, transparent community. Joshua invested his time with somebody he wanted to grow up to be. And all you have to do is read the next book to find out how it worked out. The truth of the matter is We don't follow a God that can be known by checking boxes on a checklist. You can learn a lot of things from sermons, and you can learn a lot of things in small group. You can learn a lot of things from reading good books. You can learn a lot of things a lot of ways. But there's some things in this world you're only going to learn if you hang outside the tent. We serve a God who is so big and so amazing, so loving and so gracious that even though He's changed our lives and transformed us, we're still in such awe of Him that we, we don't even really know how to explain it. When I thought about what I saw happen last year in my life as I poured into somebody else, I realized I can't explain it. I can't even explain it to you. But you know it when you see it. The way you learn it is by just being there. Just being outside the door. I'm telling you. If you don't have biblical community, it's not because there's not Moseses in this room, because there are. There are. There are people in this room, and I stood outside the tent. And I watched them meet with God. They taught me. It's because you don't want it. You don't believe it. You're afraid of it. Quite honestly, I'm, it takes a lot to... To shock me, 
but I'm even shocked at the lengths that we'll go to twist something into something it was never meant to be. And then just go right along calling it something as if that's what it is. So let me just clarify as we end this morning. Your commander-in-chief, my commander-in-chief, has directly commanded his army to exhort one another to be in a community of depth and transparency and reality centered around the Word of God consistently with people that you would endeavor to be like so that you can then turn around and multiply that in the lives of other people. You see, it is pointless for me to be Moses for you if you won't turn around and be Moses for somebody else. Pointless. And you fail at the mission. How many times will I say this? You will stand before God and get an F. Do you understand? An F. The test is not anything about how many times you came to church or how well you sang or what you did or how you gave or what. The test is did you make disciples? That is the test. I love you enough to tell you the truth. That's the test. That's the question. You better be able to answer that question. Because nobody's going to be answering in that moment, well, I mean, I was there, I was in a room, I was doing something. It's going to be... It's not going to be good. We're here to make disciples. Everything else we do is assisting with that process. And if it's not assisting with that process, then we ought not be doing it. We're in digital Babylon. Not because we put ourselves here. But because God put us here. Now why he put us here. We can have a conversation about. But that's pointless. We are here. Because he put us here. And if he didn't want us here. We wouldn't be here. So what that means is, is that rather than spending all of our time talking about all the things that are wrong and all the things that ought to be different and how come we can't go back to Jerusalem and what about this and what about that, we ought to realize that right now in this moment, there's never been a greater opportunity for us to reach Babylon than right now. Because there's never been a, a greater opportunity for you and me to live more obviously distinct lives among people in digital Babylon. There's never been a moment that it was 
easier to let your light shine than now. The darker the room, the brighter the light. So can we just put away all the wham, wham, I wish this and wish that, and let's get with the program and fight the battle we've been commissioned to fight. Let's do that. I think that's what we ought to do. I think the best thing to do when we don't know what to do is to follow the command of the commander. So as you walk out the door today, you got your orders. Make no mistake about it. The Christian life is inescapably and irreducibly corporate. 